Well, they get empty quick. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. You know you have a reputation when the first thing somebody says to you when you walk in the building is, where's your hat? Um, I know, it's crazy. It's not the first time it's happened to me. But that's a segue into the fact that there's a little vanity attached to that and that our son's getting ordained this afternoon and I'm speaking there and I didn't want to have to do my hair twice because I didn't want hat head. So um, there, there is vanity attached to that, but we are totally excited that and, and shocked that our, that our son is getting ordained today and uh, exciting time for us. Um, that all three of our kids grew up in a pastor's home and survived is, uh, is a testimony to God's grace. Also, just a word, next Sunday, um, Bill Janes is going to be with us. And um, a lot has happened since last time he was here. Um, he has gotten the Bible back into schools, I think, in four more states. And uh, he told me a couple of months ago that um, if Donald Trump gets reelected, Betsy DeVos will probably step down as Secretary of Education. And they're talking to him again about becoming Secretary of Education. So uh, he'll be here next week to to share with us and to let us know. And of course, I ask him just to tell the stories and he says, but I need to preach. So he's gonna preach as if we're all not saved, but just deal with it and get <laughs> saved again. And uh, so Bill and Haley will be here next week. And just update, last Sunday we prayed for, uh, for Jerry and Serena at Azusa First Assembly and the church did vote them out. It's a whole sad scenario. Still wanna pray for them, they'll be back. Um, I'll be back here next week. But here's an incredible thing that's happened. As I've talked with other pastors in the city, um, the consensus is all the pastors should come together and mentor Jerry and help him plant another church in Azusa and for the churches to take the responsibility to help him. And uh, so we were talking about maybe he would meet here on, on Saturdays or something, but then uh, APU is moving all their offices out of Foothill Community Church, all their upstairs offices, they're moving them back on campus, so everything's centralized. And uh, Dale said, if Jerry wants a building, we'll give him an upstairs building for a church. So the fact that the church in Azusa is gonna be the church in Azusa and help Jerry uh, plant a church is great. Um, Joe Rocha is retiring, so he's not running for mayor again. So that is gonna be an interesting uh, set of scenarios in our city. So we need to keep praying diligently for Azusa. And I had, uh, yeah, um, you know, he, every time I see him, I, I lay hands on him, I pray for him and said, Joe, run again. And so uh, he called me before he announced the city council member and said, look it, I love your prayers. My body just can't do this anymore. So um, yeah, he's, I think he's 74, so it's time for him to ride off of the sunset. He'll still, he still asks, he says, can I still come to the pastor's meetings? So that's good. So he'll still come to that. So we have a new mayor to pray in, a couple of council members to pray in. Um, I met with the chief of police this week also, had a great coffee with him, and uh, told him that, you know, he and the two captains are on our prayer list, but we'd like to pray for every police officer by name in the city. And we would like to send them birthday cards on their birthdays, and the churches would divide that up. And he was blown away that the church would want to do that. 
So he's emailing me all the all the uh, police officers' names, and uh, when the pastors get together in three weeks, we're going to divide the names up. And so we will have police officers in the city that we're responsible for to pray for every day, and also just to encourage them on on their birthdays. And so and we need to pray for our chief. He knows about God, but he doesn't know Jesus. So we need to just in relationship. Or I'll walk that in. Mike Bertelson. Mike. Bertelson. And Mike has been, um, before he was even a police officer in Azusa, he was a jail guard. He just tried so hard to become a police officer. And uh, he has spent his whole career here. So uh, he's a great guy. And um, so, yeah. So those are the announcements. We're going to jump right in. We're, we're, we're going to finish Colossians 4 today. I mean, Galatians 4. If we finish Colossians 4, that would be a miracle. Um, <laughs> So just to, uh, just to refresh, you know, Paul's writing this letter, Galatia is not a city, Galatia is a region. There are a number of churches, so it's really hard for Paul to go and have a face-to-face -face with each church, with each city and the churches in the city, so he writes a letter to all of them. But in this part of the, the passage of Scripture, he kind of bemoans the fact that he's not able to confront them face-to-face, -face because it's kind of a one-sided conversation. You know, whenever you write, I, I, I kind of have a hard time with emails and texts because there's too much you have to read into them. You know, are they smiling while they write this or are they, are they frowning while they're writing this to me? And so I'm sure as we read this, this is part of Paul's concern as they're reading this letter, but he's writing the letter for a good reason. So remember, he's led all this region into a knowledge of Christ. They've accepted Jesus by faith. But then after he has left, a group of people called Judaizers have come in and said that salvation is not based solely upon faith in Christ, unrighteousness. It's also based upon the works of the law. And so the churches in Galatia had been walking away from Paul's teachings, embracing the teachings of the Judaizers, um, causing some of their men to get circumcised because they couldn't be fully Christian until they were fully Jew. Uh, picking up the practices of all the feasts and all the laws and regulations. And so Paul's writing to try and knock them upside the head and say, what in the world are you doing? And so this is where we pick up in, uh, in Galatians chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 12. And so follow along. I'm going to read through verse 20, and then we'll uh, get into Hagar and Sarah, and I'll read, I'll read the rest of it. Beginning verse 12, Galatians chapter 4. He says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise nor reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as you witnessed that what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want, you to, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in the good things always and not only when I'm present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. 
I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So that's him talking about the letter. He says, it's hard to read the tone in a letter, hard to you to kind of figure out what's going on. So he, he begins by pleading with them by saying, look it, um, become like me because I became just like you. And this is regarding faith and, and the freedom of faith that he walks in. When he says, I became like you, what he's saying is, I came to you as a Jew, but I lived with you as a Gentile. Um, I didn't refuse any food you put before me, which wasn't kosher. Um, I lived among you. Um, I ate with you. I ministered with you. And I was sick. We don't know exactly what the infirmity is. And you can read myriads of commentaries about Paul's infirmities. And, um, yeah, everybody kind of focuses on his eyes. But you, you just never know. And that's not the point of the teaching. The point is that, that he comes to them. He says, I brought you the gospel without requiring you to do anything except receive Christ, except have that relationship with him. And so it, it seems unusual that he addresses the illness. So there, there, there is this um, understanding that somehow God uses this illness in the midst of Paul's teaching to build the relationship with them. And that, you know, and we, we read often, as you read about the life of Paul, he often talks about his infirmities. He talks about his thorn in the flesh. He talks about all these different things he's gone through. And, and he, Paul often uses his struggles and his weaknesses to draw attention to God's strength not to draw attention to his weakness. So when he's talking about infirmity here, his issue is not, I was a poor, weak guy and, and you received me. It was, look, at even in my sickness, you received me because you received the message that I was giving you. By receiving me, you received Jesus. And that was the whole point of my coming to you. And, you know, and when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. In insults, I got to tell you the truth, I do not delight in insults. Um... In hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And the thing is that one of the things that, that we often forget is that we can take our weaknesses. We can take those areas in our life where we're weak and, and that we can use them to a, a great advantage if we will remember what Paul discovered as he walked through his weaknesses. Um, a weakness can make you more compassionate as you relate to other people um, because of what um, our grandson has gone through with Crohn's disease and, and all of the stuff of going to the hospital and back and forth. We are much more compassionate towards people who, especially towards children that are suffering right now. Um, as, as we see the struggles he goes through, and, and, and we have friends who have family members who have kids in, in ICU, a little boy with brain cancer that now has gotten down to his, the stem, base stem on his spine. He's what, how old is he? Five years old. He has a twin, he has a twin sister. And because we have been in that painful place, continue asking to pray, we identify with that because we have been in that painful place. We are in that painful place with our grandson. And so our weaknesses help us to have compassion against, I mean, for other people who also 
are, are struggling in areas. They, they, they make, weaknesses make our faith more vulnerable to people who are watching us. The last thing that, that entices people to Christ is self-righteousness. Um, too many Christians think we have to put on this facade that says I have it all together, that I am, I'm just, you know, God and I are like this, and everything is great in my life, and if you accept Jesus, everything will be great in your life. And that's, that is a true statement, but it's also a false statement because it doesn't eliminate life. You still live life. You still, you know, I still, 20 years ago, I still got cancer. You know, we're still battling you know, cancer in my wife's body. That, that, that doesn't change anything. If anything, it gives us opportunity to speak into people's lives. It gives us a chance to say, look, this is what God's doing in our life. This is what God has done in our life. And so these weaknesses help others relate to us. And, and then they also, weaknesses produce something that we are very reticent to pray for. Patience. Patience in the process that God takes us through. Many, you know, I, I, uh, I tell people all the time, I, I have, in fact, there's a, a couple of pastors I meet with in town regularly. They've been, they think because I've been pastoring longer than them, I have more wisdom than them, and I'm, I'm showing them how wrong they are as we talk. Um, but one of them was saying, you know, I've, been exp I've expected things to happen so much differently because of all these prophetic words we got, and it's just not happening the way we thought. And I said... There's nothing in Scripture that says prophetic words are like instant oatmeal. You add water, and then they come to pass. I said some of, the, uh, of the, the encouragements we've received through prophetic words in our life are coming to pass 30 years later. You know, and so there is this process of patience, of holding on to Christ, holding on to the promises of the Word, and walking them out, not based upon our time schedule, but based upon our trust in Him, based upon our willingness to go where He wants us to go, in order, as Paul says in verse 12, in order that Christ might be formed in us. There is a process of forming, and a lot of times that process of forming is, requires pain. Um, for, for a couple of years, and when I was you know, an engineer, and I left my company, and I went and I worked for another company. The, the, the company I worked for two years made um, toilets and sinks for prisons. And they were called combi units, and so the, the toilet bowl and the sink and everything was one unit. And they were made out of stainless steel. And in order for these to be made, we had these huge presses. We would take a, a sheet of stainless steel that was about an eighth inch thick, flat, and the pressure and compression would come down on top of that stainless steel, and when the pressure lifted up, it would be in the shape of a toilet bowl. It takes a lot of pressure to form stainless steel into a toilet bowl without breaking it, without making it too thin, without ripping it. And that's part of the process God takes us through. We're that flat sheet of stainless steel. And sometimes he's going to press us and pressure us with things to, so, that we, so that Christ will be formed in us, that we will become the display of the work of Christ in us and, and to walk that out. And so even though Paul was unwell, he was ill. And again, we don't know what it was. It really doesn't matter. Here's the point. Paul had an infirmity that was evident enough that everybody knew about it. And again, because he's, he's writing to a region, 
He's not writing to one particular little city. He's writing to Antioch. He's writing to Miletus. He's writing to all of these churches throughout the region. Then we have to assume that every one of them knew about Paul's infirmity. And that it was something that, that, that had to be noticeable to where Paul thought it could be a hindrance because he said, you accepted me with my illness or with my infirmity, and not only do you accept me, but you accepted what I taught with such vehemence, with such um, commitment that you would have poked your eyes out in defense of me, in defense of the things I've taught you. So we, we see that, that when Paul leaves the region and he goes back and is ministering in places, he's really shocked that these people that were so attached to him, that would have given everything for him, all of a sudden, you know, and remember in chapter 2, he begins chapter 2 by saying this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying, how did it happen so fast? How did you go from faith in Christ to faith plus works equals salvation? And so that's where we are. And so he's, he says, something's happened here. He says, what happened to your joy? You guys are not joyful anymore. You're working so hard to try and win God's approval by doing these things that the Judaizers say you have to do that somewhere along the line, your salvation is no longer joyful. Now it's tedious. Now it's a work. Now you're striving really hard to be what these false teachers are coming in and telling you you have to be in order to be totally, completely saved. And so they loved and respected Paul. We know that, and Paul knew they, you know, like I said, they would have gouged their eyes out for him um, while he was there. And, and when he was among, among them, they didn't do any wrong. They never argued with him. They never had little whispers going, you know, this guy's a bad guy. They were totally committed to Paul. But along the way, three types of aberrations began to raise up in this community, in this region called Galatia. First of all, they, they became Judaized Christians. You know, they were Christians who were Jews who recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so any Gentile desiring to become a Christian had to become a Jew first, which is what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Then there was legalized Christianity, and that Christians are those who live by a long list of don'ts. Our faith is not based upon who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. Our faith is based upon what we don't do anymore. And, um, you know, my, uh, the church where my son-in-law pastors, they've been bringing a lot of my grandson's skater friends with them to church. And the people are the religious people are beginning to complain about the way they dress, about the way they look, about can you talk to them to dress nicer? I remember when, when we were in college and we were Jesus freaks and all part of that movement and we'd, I would drive down every weekend to Calvary Chapel, it was in a tent, and eventually Chuck built a, a sanctuary and you know, built a church like with pews and, and all the niceties. But you know, everybody who got saved at Calvary Chapel got saved at the beach. You know, Lonnie Frisbee preaching from the rocks above the waves. They get saved. 200 kids that get saved, and they baptize them right then in the ocean. 
And then they would bring them to Chuck Smith's church, and they would be taught. And as the church grew, they built this church. What happened was you could go to the tent. You could surf, go to the tent, lean your surfboard up against the tent, go into church in your jams and a T-shirt and barefoot, and just sit in church. And then you could go beat your surfboard and go surf again. Well, when they built the sanctuary... Kids started doing the same thing. They would come to the sanctuary with nice carpet and nice pews. They'd bring their surfboards, their bare feet, the dirty feet. When, you know, girls were coming. It was a liberation movement. Girls were coming to church without bras, just wearing T-shirts. Girls to wear bras, and you got to tell really get obsessed. So they took Chuck aside, and they said, you got to do something. You've got to tell the girls to wear bras, and you got to tell the people to wear shoes because it's messing up our new carpet. And Chuck said, okay, I'll take care of it. When everybody came to church the next Sunday, the carpet was gone. And he told him, he says, look it, I have never told a girl to put a bra on, but as Jesus transforms their life, bras show up. And that's too, too, unfortunately, there are too many who think to walk with Jesus, you have to fulfill this, this list of don'ts in order to be recognized as righteous. But it is a process. You know, I know people that we've led to the Lord, and they will still sit around the dinner table with us and drop an F-bomb until the Lord perfects them. Until they, and I don't, if they do that, I don't say, you can't come to my house anymore if you're going to talk like that. You know, we just talk about language, and we let God go through the process of transforming their life. And so that, but there are people, legalized Christians, that believe that God's favor is earned by our behavior. And the truth of the matter is, you will never behave good enough in, to receive God's favor. And then finally, there's lawless Christianity, which is kind of what has, is flowing and trying to infiltrate the church today. And that is, we're above God's requirements. We don't need guidelines because we live under grace. And it's this false grace that says, go ahead and do what you want to do because you're forgiven. Um, I, I, I've shared this before, but I had a, a, an APU student after graduated, he, he came and wanted to live in our apartments. And he moved in for a while, and so I says, okay, you move in, but part of the living in our community is being mentored and being part of our, and so let's talk about this. And he sat and, and began to convince me that he was sinless. That because Jesus lived in his heart, he no longer sinned. And, uh, it got a little intense, and it got so intense toward it said, you probably need to find a different community um, because he wasn't going to budge. Well, he came to me years later and said, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and all that. But, but the reality is there are some who pick up this lawlessness who think somehow that they're above what God requires of us. And, and his whole premise was, look it, if we're saved, we're saved. If Jesus has forgiven our sins, we're forgiven. And if our sins are washed away, then we're sinless, and therefore I'm sinless. And I said, well, th there's a little more to that, and that's not part of the message. But that's the reality. God's word is not as important to people as their own personal decisions and personal guidelines. It's the same thing. I, I, I told my son, you know, my, the, the thing that I have dealt with the most in dealing with people, which is the whole part of shepherding, is that most of the time I'm helping people unlearn the God they've created in their mind. People serve a God that they've created in their own thoughts, a God that will perform or do or should act a certain way they expect. And when God doesn't act the way they've expected, when God doesn't live up to that, they become disappointed in God. 
And, and the reason that happens is because they don't know this. You know, this is really clear. If you want to know God, know Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, you have to know the Word because Jesus is the Word. And so uh, much of my counseling has been helping people unlearn the God they've created in their own mind and help them come to know the true God, who the Bible says he is. And, and you know, they would, they would have a very difficult time with a God who allows insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, in the last beatitude, blessed are you and persecute you, revile you, speak all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. These types of Christians, these lawless Christians, have a hard time with a God who operates like that. It doesn't fit within their context. Paul, Paul who, had been, who had been an object of their affection, Paul, who had been you know, an object of, of respect, had now become their enemy. The Judaizers had preached so much, not only against Paul's teaching, but they personally were speaking against Paul. They were telling the Galatians that some going so far to say that, that what Paul was teaching was heresy because he wasn't teaching them the whole gospel. He wasn't teaching them the whole truth. And so Paul is trying to, to confront them. And the reason they don't want to hear the truth is because they're turning from their old teachers to their new teacher. And if they're still going to love and respect Paul, then they're going to have to love and respect Paul's teaching. It's kind of like the message versus the messenger. Well, in this, it doesn't matter. Whether they reject the messenger or whether they reject the message, they had become an enemy of Paul. And so Paul was trying to make them understand that they were in danger of believing a lie that these other people were telling them was the gospel. And uh, he said, you know, he talks about zealousness. He says, you know, and... and um, uh, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. And, you know, so the false teachers had, had selfish motives. They, the, their motive was they wanted the Galatians to follow them. Their zeal was more for believe us than believe Paul. And, you know, um, you can be zealous for good reasons, and you can be zealous for bad reasons. It can be positive or it can be wrong in the wrong hands. And, and these people were zealous in compromising. And Jesus addressed people like that. When he addressed the Pharisees, he says, what are you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you. So Paul was saying this, or Jesus was saying this to the, to the Pharisees. Look, you want them to believe in God, but once they believe, now you've put all these different laws, all these different regulations that I never gave you, you put upon them, and you're making them live by them if they truly want to be Jews, and they've become worse than you have. And so Paul zealously preached the gospel, and uh, but he worried that the... Galatians were being persuaded more by the zealousness of the Judaizers than by himself. And, and the thing is, God wants Jesus to live in each side of us. You know, I, 
I love that I get to teach, but when you walk out of this room, what lives inside of you cannot be, well, this is what Rick said. It has to be, this is what Scripture says. This is what Jesus says. This is how I live my life. And that was Paul's deal. Jesus needed to be fully alive in them. You know, and that's, what, that's why Paul, when he writes, we, we already went into this in chapter 2, but he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, Romans 12, being conformed. Romans 8, I mean, being conformed to the image of Christ accents this personal change that needs to take place. No longer be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind who the Lord knew he loved and who he loved to predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. So there is this conforming that takes place, and it forms within us. And Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul couldn't, he was busy, he couldn't just pick up and go to every single church. And, and, and that kind of bothered him, because again, like I said, it's hard to read emotion into a letter. Somebody could write a letter and be as loving as they think they are in the letter, and you read it and think, what a jerk. Why would they say that to me? And Paul was afraid that was happening. And, and he says, you know, I wish we were there face to face. I wish that I could write, express it in such a way that uh, you wouldn't have to read it. Um, and it's, he says, I understand it's a one-sided letter. You're not able to respond back to me, and I'm responding out of what I heard. But please listen to what I'm saying. And he talks about freedom, you know, full freedom, which is no lack of opportunity, ability, or to desire to prevent you from doing what God is going to fulfill you and make you joyful for all eternity. And... As I looked at this and thought about this, I thought there are three stages of freedom um, on the way to this unending joy talks about. And I've talked about this a lot, that, that as I read Scripture, the greatest source of joy is fellowship and relationship. You in this room are a key to the joy in my life and the key to each other's joy. And Paul, when he's talking about joy, he says joy is coming out of relationship. But here's what happened. In, in, that, in, in that freedom to be joyful, there is the freedom to have the opportunity to do what we can do. There's the freedom of the ability to do what we yearn to do. I mean, there are things that we may want to do, but we have no ability to do. Um, and then... You know, freedom of a desire to do what will bring us in unending, unending joy. And so I thought about this, and I was going to start with skydiving, but I would never skydive. So I thought, I'm not going to go to something that I would long to do. I had the opportunity once, and I will be quite honest. Um, it's before I was married, and a whole bunch of us from work decided to go skydiving, and that morning I chickened out. I didn't go, and it was simply because three people had died the week before um, at the place we were going. I just kind of just, yeah. So I have never, ever, 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 ever had the desire to skydive. Um, so, but 
Um, I regret that I've never snowboarded. I've actually never skied. And now that I have this stainless steel knee, my doctor tells me I will never ski or snowboard. So it's something that will never happen in my life. And so I thought about snowboarding. And so suppose you're on your way to Big Bear to go snowboarding uh, for the first time. Your car hits a pothole. Tire blows out. You skid over. You hit the side rail. Your car is broken down. Um, the opportunity, you have to wait for a tow truck. And so you just lost the freedom of opportunity. You, you can't go to Big Bear anymore. And so, but let's suppose that doesn't happen. Let's suppose that you get to Big Bear and you get to the ski lift, but you have no ability. You've skied before, but uh, you've never snowboarded and you don't know the first thing about snowboarding. You think if I can ski, I can snowboard. And uh, there's the opportunity, but there's no freedom of ability. And so you're really in bondage because of your lack of know-how. If, if you're going to put that board on your feet and just jump off that ski lift and think you're going to go down the hill just like you do on skis, you're going to be rudely awakened the moment you hit the snow. The third thing is you hit the ski lift, you've been trained, you have all the abilities needed, and uh, you get up on the ski lift and you go off, but as soon as you look down the hill, all the desire vanishes. I really want to do this, but fear comes in. Do I really want to do this? But you're with your buddies, or you're with your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, and the fear of humiliation is stronger than the fear of falling down. And so you go ahead and you jump off, scared to death down the entire route. And even though you had, you had the, the freedom of opportunity, and even though you had the freedom of, and, and you had the freedom of abilities, you didn't have the freedom of desire because fear just killed that. Or, the, or humiliation killed it because you thought your friends might or your girlfriend might not think you're cool anymore. It's, it reminded me of the story um, of the Bible in the Bible with Herod um, when he had arrested John the Baptist and his stepdaughter wanted the head of John the Baptist. And Herod did not want to do it. He didn't want to cut off John's head, but the request was made in front of everybody, and he didn't want to appear to be weak. And so he went ahead because of the fear of humiliation and beheaded John the Baptist. And, and oftentimes, the fear of humiliation is greater than the fear of failure or, the, or our own fear of what might happen. And so we just move ahead. And so we have the freedom of desire to do what we love to do. You know, the, the, the way a lot of professing Christians try to keep the commands of Christ is they don't really delight in them, but they feel uncomfortable restraints, so they appear to do so. Let me tell you, there's nothing worse in the kingdom of God than not enjoying the pleasures of God, than not enjoying the pleasures of walking in fellowship and righteousness with God to try and live a life that is fake, to try to be something 
uh, for the advantage of people who are looking at you as opposed to the, the, the joy and the comfort that comes with intimate relationship with God through his son is, is, is sad. And, and so people go through these outward motions of obedience, uh, but the desire of their hearts fixed somewhere else. I know pastors who feel like they're stuck in a rut because they've never, ever experienced the pleasures of loving God. They've never fully understood God's emotion toward them. They've never fully understood that God delights in them. You know, the word says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the problem is wrong desires lead to no delight. But delight in the Lord leads to the right desires. And when you have the right desires, God fulfills them because you're in agreement with what he's doing in your life. And so as we walk in that, you know, the, the, last, the last requirement for full freedom, let's go back to our snowboarding exercise, is you get on the ski lift, there's no obstacles, you have all the know-how necessary, you look at the slope and you think, I'm king of the hill, I cannot wait to master this slope. You jump off, you begin to zoom down the mountain and your binding breaks. And all of a sudden you're zooming off towards the trees and toward the rocks. And you suddenly come to this realization that you may not survive. I may go into these trees at X miles per hour and that may be the end. And all of a sudden, this are we really free? Is this freedom that I had when I jumped off and started down the hill? Now I can't control where my board's going and now it may lead to my destruction. Am I really free in all of a sudden the opportunity and the desire and the know-how, but now all of a sudden, because my bindings are broke, it's going to lead to my destruction. And in order to be fully free, it's not enough to have opportunity. It's not enough to have ability. It's not enough to have desire. The acts that we desire and we perform lead to life, lead to eternal life. They don't lead to destruction. But that's, that's the problem today with the naivety of a lot of believers in that the window of sin, the exhilaration of downhill sex, the exhilaration of downhill greed or downhill drugs or downhill money is going to pass away like a vapor. It's soon gone, and, and no, there's not going to be joy. There's not going to be satisfaction. There, instead, there is going to be a desire to do more trying to be fulfilled by your own actions as opposed to allowing our joy and our delight to come from the Lord in our relationship with him. John says the world is passing away and its desires, but whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. So he's saying the desires of the world are not the answer to opportunity, ability, and desire. The answer to opportunity, ability, and desire is to pursue Christ with all your heart and allow those to bring fulfillment to your life. And so 
here's what the law teaches about freedom. And this is where we're going to get into this, this correlation. We're going to jump into Abraham had two sons. You all know that, right? We talked about that last week. Abraham had two sons. He had one was by a slave woman, and uh, the other was by a free woman, his wife. And uh, Abraham is downcast, and he's having this conversation with God. He goes, I have this great life. I have this great inheritance, but I have no heirs. My only heir is Eleazar, my servant. So I'm going to leave everything to him. And, and God said, told him, he says, Eleazar will not be your heir. You will have a son who will be your heir. Now, when he, when he talks to Abraham about this, Abraham's in his late 70s when he first talks to him and gives him this promise. So God's intention was to give Abraham a son, an, an, an heir, when it looked totally impossible. And so um, it was so that Abraham would solely, completely rely upon God to fulfill the promise. Remember, we've talked about this over the weeks. Because of our righteousness, because of our faith, we become heirs of the righteousness of Abraham. The promises that God gave to Abraham are ours because of the righteousness we have, because we have faith in the same God and the same things Abraham had. And Paul said there are Jews who are biologically of the seed of Abraham, but they will not receive the inheritance because they don't have faith that leads to righteousness. But those who have faith that leads to righteousness are the sons of Abraham, and we have that inheritance. So God wanted this son to be a display of Abraham's total dependence upon God. God told Abraham he's going to have a son when physically it was impossible for he and Sarah to conceive a child. Now, as the story goes, the impossibility wasn't with Abraham. The impossibility, they thought, was with Sarah. And so this, this story begins to brew, and uh, Abraham, weeks in faith, um, he and Sarah devise a plan to help God fulfill his promise, yep. way to make it happen, you know, you're, you're God, we're, we, we know what you're doing, and we figured out a way to make it happen, and so this is what we're going to do, and so Sarah gives her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham so she can bear a son. And voila, they have sex. She gets pregnant. Nine months later, according to Genesis 16, Hagar born a son, bore Abram a son, and Abraham called the name of his son Ishmael. But when Paul says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, he's talking about Ishmael was a product of Abraham's self-reliance upon his abilities as opposed to God's. And so Abraham ceased to rely on God's power, you know, fulfill his word. Instead, he relied on his own ability as a man to procreate, to produce a son. The problem is it wasn't the son that God intended for Abraham to produce. So 14 years later, God appears to Abraham again and says, your wife is going to have a son. And the Bible tells us that Abraham laughed. It says he fell on his face and laughed. So 
You've seen it when people are laughing so hard they can't stand up. That's the picture we have here. Because Abraham is 100 and Sarah's 90. So Abraham is probably laughing, first of all, thinking, look it. Yes, I did get Hagar pregnant, but that was 14 years ago. I'm pretty sure that ain't going to happen. And secondly, Sarah couldn't get pregnant 14 years ago. There's no way she's going to get pregnant now. So he's 100, she's 90, he's laughing at God. And then God moves in, and we know what happened. And so God rejects the fact that Abraham was able to produce a son on his own and, and produce his own promises in spite of Abraham's age, and Paul sums it up this way. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman was born through the promise. So Paul now is going to tell this allegory of these two covenants. Follow me as I read the last part of chapter 4. And, and again, Paul is writing to Gentiles. So obviously he's taught them the story of Hagar and Sarah, because he's talking to them like they know the story, and they were not raised in Judaism, so they don't know the story of Abraham um, and Sarah and Hagar uh, the way Jewish people would know it. So obviously Paul taught them something about that. So he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, what do you hear? Do you not hear the law? For it is written, that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are two, the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So again, he's talking to Gentiles. You are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, that persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So he's using this, this allegory between Hagar and Sarah. And Hagar and her affair, even though it was condoned by his wife, it's still an affair. His affair with, with Hagar and their son Ishmael, Paul says, is like the covenant on top of Mount Sinai. Now, you know, Mount Sinai is where where Moses got Ten Commandments, he's where he got the law. And remember Paul's, before we've talked about the difference between the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Abraham. So now we're back to the covenant of Moses. He's talking about Abraham, but he's back to the covenant of Moses, the two covenants. And he's saying Hagar and Ishmael are a picture 
of the covenant that God made with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And the reason he's saying that is because Israel did exactly what Abraham did. When Israel received the law, instead of humbling themselves before the Lord and coming to the Lord and say, Lord, these laws are impossible for us to keep on our own. We depend upon you to help us walk out the law in righteousness in accordance with what your heart is. Instead, Israel said, God, we got this. We've got the law. We're cool. We don't need you anymore. We'll keep the law. But what happened was they kept building upon the law. They kept making the law harder and harder and harder for people to keep, and they couldn't keep it. And so the covenant of Mount Sinai became something that Israel worked at to try to be righteous in the same way that Abraham worked with Hagar to try and fulfill God's promise to him. Do you get that? Do you understand? So that's, that's the picture of Hagar. That's why he says Hagar is Mount Sinai, even though Mount Sinai was an cr- incredibly important place for Israel. The result of Mount Sinai eventually caused Israel to go back into bondage. I mean, they just come out of 400 years of bondage. They come, Moses comes down after the golden calf fiasco, comes down, they go, they settle, and now they try and live according to the law, but they become an unrighteous people because they try and live according to the law on their own strength. And it becomes so bad that Jeremiah has to show up on the scene and said, okay, God's had enough. You guys are going back into bondage. You're going back into captivity because you have tried and failed to do what you said you're going to do. And so that's the picture, and that's a picture of many Christians. That's the picture Paul was giving to these Galatians who were being influenced by the Judaizers and saying, look it, just as the law that was given on top of Mount Sinai could not be fulfilled in the strength of man's power and the strength of man's will, Israel needed God to help them keep the law. For you to say faith in Christ requires you to keep the law and requires you to be circumcised is no different than Abraham and Hagar, and the birth of what you will believe in will become a work of the flesh. It will not be a work of the spirit. But then he says, on the other hand, he takes us to Sarah and corresponds Sarah to Jerusalem. And so, um, and he corresponds Sarah to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so here's what he says. Paul skips over any mention of the Abrahamic covenant. So he talked about the Mosaic covenant with Sinai, but this time he doesn't talk about the Abrahamic covenant. But he says the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. And so what does he mean? The Jerusalem above is free. So what he's doing is he's contrasting present Jerusalem, which is in bondage right now in this time of history. Jerusalem is still under bondage. They are free. The, the rulership of the Roman Empire, they have no freedom. Yes, they are, they are free to do Jew things without the power of God. Those who tried to do things in the power of God in the name of Jesus have been persecuted and run out of the city and are being killed. And those who live in the Jerusalem now are in the same bondage the children of Israel were in the wilderness when Moses came down off the top of Mount Sinai. And so he says, he contrasts present Jerusalem in verse 25 with the Jerusalem above in verse 26. And, and Paul says this, it kind of explains it when he writes to the Colossians. He says, if you then have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So Jerusalem above represents the dwelling place of God, represents the throne room of God with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And our life and our freedom of faith does not flow from law, but it flows from our relationship with that one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who grants us access into the presence of the Father to have fellowship with him and to have his life and his will and his way flow through us. And that then is the birth of promise that Isaac represents because the birth of Isaac through Sarah when Abraham's 100 and she's 90 and she gets pregnant, that birth is a picture of God taking impossible things and making them possible. That then is the picture of faith. And that's the Jerusalem of above, us living in that. And so when Paul talks about this, he's saying, look it. You're torn between two places. You're torn either by the place of promise where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and you can have fellowship with God, or you're caught up over here with Israel who was never, ever, ever able to keep the law in their own strength and their own might and failed and ended up in bondage. He's saying, look it. If you're going to accept the teachings of the Judaizers, if you're going to say your relationship with Christ is based upon more than faith in the work that he did on the cross then you're going to end up exactly like the children of Israel did in the wilderness. You're going to be in bondage because you're trying to live out your faith according to works. But on the other hand, if you remember everything I taught you, if you remember that it was because of the righteousness of Abraham that he received the inheritance and that as you have the same righteousness and faith in God as Abraham, you become heirs of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Paul's driving this forward to the church at Galatia. He's driving it forward to us. Pay attention, church. He's saying, don't get caught up in this trap of thinking you have to do more than Jesus has already done. Our life is not based upon do. Our life is based upon done. We live according to what Jesus already completed. There was nothing left to be done. Jesus did it all. The Bible says he is our sufficiency. He sufficed every requirement God had for the penalty of sin, every bit of it, and he paid it all. And the only way you and I have fellowship with God, the only way you and I walk in righteousness is by going to the throne room first and living our life out according to the relationship we have with the one who sits on the throne. And Jesus is there for us. It says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and what he's doing is making intercession for us. He wants us to walk out. He, you know, Jesus said, the works I do, you will do also in greater works. And when Jesus was accused by his accusers, you know, are you the son of God? So you say I am. And then they said, <clears throat> he said, look it, I'm only doing what I see my father doing. That was Jesus' defense to his accusers before he got crucified. I'm only doing, where did he get his input? From the Father. We need to live our lives. We need to do what we see the Father doing. That's why I said, when we pray for things, yes, we see the outcome of it down here, but the battle's taking place up here. 
I mean, Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers of darkness. Where? In heavenly places. Paul doesn't say we fight the spiritual battle down here. If we fight down here, we become as Abraham and Hagar. We try fight the battle on our own strength. But when we come up to this place of the heavenlies and we sit at the right hand of the Father and we pray, Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Father, what are your ways? What are your thoughts? How do we pray those out? How do we live those out today? And we have faith enough to know, and this is where we, we fall off the cliff. We have faith enough to know that just because we don't see something happening doesn't mean it isn't happening. We, we are so results-oriented if we don't see something happen right now, we think, well, maybe I prayed wrong. Maybe I heard wrong. Maybe I didn't fully understand what the Bible said. Jesus said, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. Keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. And if God has given you a promise, if God has spoken a word into your life, if God has given you a vision and a mission to accomplish and it hasn't come to pass, don't you dare sit around and try and hager it. Don't sit around and try and make it work on your own because there are a, a whole, there's a whole nation on the face of the earth who believes that because Abraham is their father, all the promise that were given to the son of promise belonged to them. They just had to create another God to do it and call him Allah. And they just have to say that Jesus um, was a good teacher and maybe a prophet, but nothing else. But they still think, and here's the crazy thing. This is just a side note, not even the notes. The God that the Muslims have created is a powerful God. And, and they are in fear of his power, and they do what their fear tells them to do, even to the place of killing themselves and killing other people for the sake of reward. Christians, on the other hand, we serve the most powerful being in all the universe, and we've reduced him down to some little weak thing that can only do what we want him to do. We serve the true God, and we've made him into a God of our image, and they choose a false God, and they think he's all-powerful. The same was true with the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, we, we love Thor, you know, and we, we love, and we know the stories of Zeus and all that. Do you see in mythology how powerful those gods are? How afraid they are of those gods? And we serve the true God, and we're, oh, um, I don't need him. I can do what I need to do. And if, if I need him, we'll call on him. But we're not afraid of him. We don't fear him, as the Bible says. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord. So the God that is the true God that is more powerful than any God that is created by man is worshipped by a people who keep him in their back pocket in case they need him. And the people that don't know the true God, they create their own gods and they lay their lives down for the God of their own creation. It's crazy. It's crazy. And we have to decide, are we going to be heirs according to Hagar? And Abraham, or are we going to be heirs according to Abraham and Sarah? One is accomplished by works. One is accomplished by faith. And Paul is telling the Galatians, you guys are at a crossroads right now. You're saying you want the Hagar promise. 
You want the promise that Abraham and Sarah concocted on their own and that you don't want the Sarah promise, which takes place in the throne room of heaven. So going back, freedom is this. Freedom is opportunity, ability, and desire to do what will make you happy eternally. We just have to, we make the choice. I mean, this is an incredible thing. God did all that and said, then you choose. Paul says the Ishmael types don't have this freedom, but the Isaac types do. They're not free because they lack the desire to rest in God's promises. They lack the desire to show their own resourcefulness. It's not that they desire to reject God. They simply want God on their own terms. Abraham and Hagar wanted God's blessing, but not on his terms. We, like Sarah, like Isaac, you mean, are children of promise. We've been born of the Holy Spirit. The essence of Christianity is the miracle of new birth. The hallmark of the Isaac types is that we've been converted, changed, and transformed, not through anything we've done, but through faith in the one who did it all. We don't labor uh, under the burden of having to do what we don't want to do. We're free to do what we love to do and to do it forever with joy. I want to say it again. We are free to do whatever we want to do and to do it with joy if we are children of righteousness and we walk according to the promise because we walk according to the promise according to Paul then we are up in the new Jerusalem we're up in the heavenly Jerusalem we're getting our orders from God and we're walking out the way God wants us to walk out and therefore we are happy we are not in bondage and God causes has caused us to be born again by the spirit of his son shaping our lives according to his will and that's the end of chapter four so it's pretty simple. If you walk out of anything today, just think about Hagar and Sarah. Think about their offspring. The moment you think you have to do something more to prove your worthiness to God is the moment you become an Ishmael. But every day, regardless of the circumstances that surround us, regardless of how hard they seem, regardless of how unfair they seem, regardless of how impossible they seem, if we are children of Sarah, if we are children of faith, then we go to the faith giver and we say, though they slay me, yet will I trust him. And we walk that out every moment of every day. So Father, we pray that your word would become life in our hearts. God, that it would move from our ears to our heart, to our spirit. And God, that we would walk out every day as promised in your word, to be sons of Abraham, to receive the promise of inheritance, because our life in you is birthed in faith, birthed in believing in someone we've never seen, believing that he is fully God, fully man, that he came down, he put on skin, he walked among us, he was tempted like us, he was crucified, he was buried, he rose from the dead, he ascended on high, and he seats at the right, sits at the right hand of God, and his job for all eternity till we show up with him is to pray for us. God, may we walk in the fruit of that prayer. May we be the full answers to the prayer of the Son at the right hand of the Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, that's all I have to say about that. Um,
sorry about the smell in here today. Our roof leaked back in the conference room, and we didn't know it. So after water sits in rug for about five days, gets a little smelly. But we'll get it fixed this week. Also, don't forget, uh, if you brought turkeys, um, we'll take them home. 